Chapter 56 of Kit and Kitty by Richard Doddridge Blackmore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 56 Another Trace. So far as my experience goes, it has never been an easy thing to find a man in whom the sense of justice is adjusted perfectly, that is to say, not overdrawn, nor strained to a pitch that is at discord with all human nature, neither, on the other hand, so lax and flabby that it yields to every breath, and has no distinctive tone. Therefore I cannot expect to be approved by everybody for my recent act. But the glow of a tender conscience told me that I had not behaved amiss. Yet the remembrance of my own rage and utter loss of self-command frightened me more than I can express, for a single word, a look, a gesture, even a flicker across my own will, would have made me then and there a murderer, what a thing for Kitty to hear, if ever she should hear of me again, that my unhappy love of her had been cut short by the hangman. I formed the sensible resolve to keep out of Bullrag's way henceforth, unless he should come to seek me, and then his blood must be on his own head. At first I did not tell my uncle of that brief but hot engagement, because, as I came to think about it, the folly of it dawned on me, for the fierce enjoyment of a minute I had sacrificed all hope of tracing such faint clues as we had won, and I had shown the arch-enemy in the most palpable form my suspicions of him. This was unsound policy, and I was loath to confess it yet, lest my chief friend should be discouraged as well as angry with me. However, the whole thing soon came out, and with so much more tacked on to it that I was forced to recount the simple facts— but instead of being vexed, as in my opinion a truly wise man must have been, my uncle shouted with delight and shook his thick sides with laughter. So you pulled his nose? Kit Orchardson pulled the nose of the future Lord Roarmar, and the son-in-law of Earl of Clarenhouse. Show me how you did it. This is too fine. No, I scarcely pulled his nose. I cannot be said to have pulled his nose. All I did was to take him by the nose, and he came after it wonderfully. I see, I see. He just followed his nose, and a lawyer could prove that there was no assault. A man follows his nose without assault or battery. Well, I never thought you were so clever, Kit, because I never boast, I answered calmly, and it struck him for the first time that this might be so. What will he do? he asked. Whatever will he do? He can't very well put up with it. And yet, how can he get satisfaction? You wouldn't fight him, I suppose, even if he deigned to ask you. I never thought of it. Let him try. He has done the wickedness. What I have done is nothing. Well, I think it was something good. The very best thing you could have done. Much better than knocking him down or even cowhiding him, as the Yankees say. Oh, your Aunt Parslow will be delighted. She is coming over here tomorrow. You know what you put into her head. She will call on the parson again about it. The poor girl is very ill, worse than ever. I hope he will agree to it. Aunt Parslow seems very fond of Sunbury now, I replied with a curious glance at him. Why should she always be coming over here so? You had better ask her. I dare say she can answer for herself. You must not expect to pull everybody's nose. It had lately appeared to me, more and more, as if my Aunt Parslow were beginning to set her cap at my Uncle Corney, 
or rather, to put it more politely, as if he were doffing his wide awake to her, a wide awake proceeding, no doubt, on his part, and a proof of capacity on hers, but not a thing at all to my liking, nor in any way savoring of those lofty feelings which are so essential to wedlock, and without any mercenary motives whatever, or even a dream of self-seeking, I had felt, with good grounds for it, a delicate and genial interest in my dear aunt's affairs. If after countless years of single blessedness she thought to double the rest by a joint-stock company, all I could do was to wish her well, and hope profoundly for her happiness. There were few better men than my Uncle Corney, and no woman better than my Aunt Parslow, and they might rub on together rarely, if each would let the other rub, fair turn and turn about. But I feared that they scarcely had the give and take for that, and being both of strong metal, it would come to groans and sparks. Nevertheless, I must put up with events, and the little inquiry I had offered, as above, had not been received with gratitude. The surest way to bring this wild idea into fact would be for me to show opposition to it, but I knew that Aunt Parslow was still romantic, as all women of true nature are. She had felt her own love affairs in early days, but she would not want to think that Uncle Corney had felt his, and had resolved to let her hear of them by his own sighs, if he could be brought to sigh about anything but markets. When she arrived the next day I saw that she was in fine spirits, but a little ashamed, as it seemed to me, of the exceedingly spirited dress she wore quite as if she were going to the races. Moreover, she had brought Jupiter, as if to introduce him to someone who might influence his future life, and at this I ventured to express surprise, in a friendly manner, and with my hand upon his head. "'Oh, he does love a change, and it does him so much good,' she exclaimed as if she had been in her teens. "'And I should like to hear what Mr. Orchardson thinks of him. He is a good judge of dogs, you said.' Alas, if one ever tells a story, how quick it is in kicking up its heels. In charity I had said something of the kind, when I wished to make good will between them. Here was Jupiter come to prove me a liar, and perhaps to sway my destinies. Don't get out with that lovely dress on, I said very craftily. Let us go down to Mr. Golightly's. I know that you want to see him. I will jump on the box and show Kochi the way. It will save you a lot of trouble." Accordingly, we drove on to the parson's, and I went in to announce her. She had called upon him twice before, and he liked her, and was grateful for her good intentions. He received us kindly, but we could see that his heart was in nothing he was talking of. He looked most sadly worn and thin, and his eyes fell every now and then, as a short, low cough came from another room. "'And how is your sweet Bessie?' Miss Parslow asked. You know, she is quite an old friend of mine. What a favor you could do me, if you only would. I have taken such a liking to her. And she to you. I will go and fetch her. I fear you will find her looking very little stronger. Call this furniture. I call it hardware, my aunt said in a low tone when he had left the room. No wonder the poor girl is all bones. Now back me up, Kit, about Baycliff. It is your prescription, you remember? It was as much as my aunt could do, being of a very kindly nature, to keep a smile upon her face when the sickly girl came towards her. 
and the father looked from one to the other and tried to make some little joke, but his eyes were sparkling with something else. You know what you promised me, my dear, if your good father would allow it. Miss Parslow stroked her silky hair and looked into her soft eyes as she spoke. And now everything is arranged and settled. I am sure you will not throw me over. The rooms are taken and I cannot go alone. It would be so miserable for me. Your father will come to see you every week and you shall teach him to catch prawns. And where do you suppose it is? Not any strange place at all, but a place my nephew knows quite well, and the very same house that he was in, and he would come down and be near us. Oh, that would be nice. I should not feel strange. Kit is so kind and gentle to me. I like to be where Kit is. She came and placed her thin hands in mine, for I had become like an elder brother to her. She knew of my sorrow and I of hers. It was not this world that she grieved to quit, but her father all alone in it. It was a terrible pain to me, and almost more than I could bear, to find myself in this lovely place without any love to respond to it. At every turn there was something to recall, at every view of gliding boat or breaking wave or flitting gull, some memory of a trifle said, and misery of having no one now to say it but for the good of others I was forced to put these fancies by, for we could not have found another spot so suitable for the poor sick child, and as it proved, there was something even here to compensate me. It had not been thought worth while to take any lodgings for me in the place, as I could not be spared throughout the week from the busy fruit season at Sunbury. Whenever I found time to run down to Baycliffe, I could get a bed at the inn and spend the day with my aunt and her delicate charge. This suited me also much better because I did not like to be long away from the neighborhood of London, where, as I always felt somehow, the strange mystery of my life must be cleared up, if it ever were so. Mrs. Perron was a very nice person and deeply interested in our affairs. Kitty and I had lodged with her for a week, and although we could not afford to take her best rooms, she treated us exactly like first-floor people, and would have kept us for nothing, as she assured us, if only she could have afforded it. And now it rejoiced me to do her a good turn by inducting my aunt at three guineas a week, which was nothing for her to think twice of. Six of the leatherhead dogs came down for the refreshment of their systems, and Miss Golightly was delighted with them, and spent half the day on the sand scratching their heads. The weather was all that could be wished, for we were come to the end of September now, and the summer as a whole had done its utmost to atone for the atrocities of the year before. Miss Perron and Miss Parslow were as good friends as any two people can be, with money coming weekly between them, and they never spent less than an hour a day in talking of my loss and wondering, till it chanced that the landlady called to mind a little thing that happened after we had left her, and to which she had paid no attention at the time, but my aunt considered it of some importance and begged her to tell me all about it the very next Saturday I should come down. Well, Mr. Kit, she said upon Sunday morning, for I had been too late on Saturday to see them, it may have been a week after you were gone, or it may have been no more than one day, but at any rate there came to this house a very quiet gentleman, not over young, about fifty, you might say, 
and not over tall, about halfway between five feet and six feet, and he asked for you, Mr. Orchardson, by name, and then the new Mrs. Orchardson, and when our Jenny told him that you were gone, he sighed, Jenny says, though you never must be certain of anything that Jenny says, just as if he had lost his pocket-book, and then he asked for me, and he was shown up here, the drawing-room floor being vacant, as you may remember, and I came up to see him, but I happened to be a little flustered about having all the house on my hands so, and when I found that he was not even looking out for lodgings, perhaps I was a little short with him, but whether or no he did not push on with his questions as some people do, but he took up his hat and begged me to excuse him for intruding upon my valuable time, and away he went with a very solid walk, and I was sorry afterwards. But what was he like? Can you at all describe him? Even his dress would help a little. I thought it most likely that this was the man who had come for my kitty in Philip Mogg's boat, and taken her doubtless in Clipson's cab from Shepperton to Walking Road. I think I should know him if I saw him again, but I won't be quite sure, replied Mrs. Perron. He was a gentleman, I should say decidedly, though not in a fashionable cut of clothes. And I think he had gray hair, though I won't be sure, because so many people have that now. He looked highly educated, and his voice was very nice, and he wore a broad hat with a cord to it. Why, it must be the professor himself, exclaimed my aunt. According to all I have heard of him, and according to your description, Kit, he came to see how you were getting on, and whether you and Kitty had fought yet. Oh, that reminds me of a curious thing, and I thought it so odd, said the landlady. He did seem to think that you must have quarreled, or at least there was something unpleasant between you. I remember now that he did quite well, because I was astonished at such an idea. For if ever there was a young couple suited, intended by the Lord for one another, it cannot have been the professor, I broke in, for the simple reason that he must already have left the shores of England. We had a telegram from Falmouth proving that, and her father would never for a moment have imagined that Kitty and I had fallen out already. What did this man say to show that he supposed it? Well, I don't know that he did exactly that, but he inquired particularly about your health, or rather, I should say, your state of mind, as if you were not quite, you know what I mean, as if you were rather flighty, sir. Well, and so I am, I answered, smiling, and a great many people would have flown off together if they had been through half what I have, and now this again is another wicked puzzle for me. The only thing certain is that I shall never find it out. I always come just a bit too late. I hear of a thing when it is no good. I inquire of people when they have forgotten everything. This was rather rude of me, for Miss Perron had done her best to assist me, and she could not be blamed for not talking by the hour with a stranger about her late lodger's affairs. Did he say what he meant to do? I asked, for really all these things were very tantalizing. Did he give you any idea why he should take such an interest in us? Did he ask where we were? Did he mention my uncle? Did he go on as if, I'm truly sorry, Mr. Kit, I am indeed, but I can't tell you another thing about him, and I am not sure that all I have told you occurred. Some of it may have come out of my own head. I can't carry everything. I can't indeed. Mrs. Perron was almost crying and it was plainly useless to question her further. 
Such is evidence, even with people who are not fools, and who do their very best, yet in a court of justice an unhappy witness is badgered and insulted by some brazen-headed fellow, who could not tell a tale himself in its true order if he had just read it in a spelling-book. The only conclusion I could come to was that Mrs. Perron's visitor and the passenger in the boat and cab who had taken my wife away were one and the same person, acting no doubt under Bullrag's orders, but why he should have shown himself in the first case plainly and made his second visit in that furtive manner was more than I could even pretend to explain. Another thing which I could not explain was of a different and delightful order, rejoicing in the sea air and in the sea itself, Bessie Golightly grew stronger every day. The wan delicacy and waxen clearness began to flush with a rosy gleam. Her eyes looked darker and yet full of light, and her lips, instead of drooping at the corners, crisped their pretty curves with a lively smile. Miss Parslow was as proud as a hen that has struck an ant's nest, and took her to the china shop every day to be admired, and to the station to be weighed, and whenever her father came to see her with six hours allowed at the seaside, he spent all the six in looking at her. End of chapter 56